Well, take your copy of the Word of God today and join me, if you would, in Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter number 42. My grandmother is now in heaven with the Lord, but she lived with us for the last, um, oh, seven or eight years of her life. And this would have been when I was in my latter years of high school and then in my early years of college. My grandmother had debilitating arthritis, so her fingers were curled and gnarled. In fact, every joint of her body was racked with the effects of rheumatoid arthritis. So she lived in constant pain, but she never uttered a word of complaint. In fact, my grandmother had a standard answer. If you said, Grandma, how are you feeling? She would get this little grin on her face and then she would bring her gnarled fingers and, and she would do this. She'd, we'd say, grandmother, grandma, how you feeling? And she'd say, usually with my fingers. And we would roll our eyes and, and uh, you know, go on to whatever was next. If you were asked the question, how are you feeling? I suspect that you would understand the question is not, are you feeling with your fingers, but how are you doing? How are you feeling? What's going on with you right now? The title of our message is actually in the form of a question, and it's going to come from our passage today in Psalm 42. The title of our message is simply, Why Art Thou Cast Down? Richard Sibbs was one of the old Puritan writers. He wrote a couple books that stand out today. One is called The Bruised Reed. It's a, it's a beautiful work that, that helps us understand that God's not going to quench the smoking flax. He's not going to break the bruised reed. And then Sibbs wrote another work. It's called The Soul's Conflict with Itself. And in that work, Richard Sibbs wrote the following. He said, true peace arises from knowing the worst first and then our freedom from it. It is a miserable peace that riseth from ignorance of evil. It is a miserable peace that rises from the ignorance of evil. Okay, how many of you have ever been in a situation before where looking back, you realized how close to something dangerous you actually were? So years ago, I, I have probably referenced this story before, but years ago, Dr. Zacharias and I were in our early 20s and we were traveling in a singing group. Now I was a speaker, he was the singer and um, and we were traveling, we were up in North Carolina and we were hiking in North Carolina with a group of guys. So it's all of us young guys and we hiked back to a place where there was a spectacular waterfall, spectacular. And uh, for whatever reason, Tim and I said, hey, let's climb up the side of the waterfall. And so we did, we began to climb up the side of these waterfalls. There's rocks that were sticking out and ledges. And we got to a place about three quarters of the way up this, this massive, beautiful waterfall. And we got up there and, and um, there was a place where we couldn't advance unless you did something that you probably shouldn't do. Okay. 
You had to grab hold of a ledge with one hand, get your hands on the other, find a little foothold and push yourself up on this ledge and then you could continue on, we thought, the rest of the way up the, the side of the waterfall. Well, I went and I got my foot on the, the rock and I pulled myself up. But even as I'm doing it, you could feel that the spray, the continual spray from the waterfall had made this ledge mossy and slippery. So I, I, I got up and then, and then Tim came over and, and he did the same. He grabs hold and he begins to pull himself up. But for some reason, he doesn't have his foot on the right ledge to push himself the rest of the way up. And now at that moment, when I'm standing there and I see Dr. Zacharias, at that point, just Tim, okay? And I see Tim there and here I am and, and um, he looks up at me and he says something in a way that no one wants to hear. He used the expression help. And, and if I pull him, because of the angle of the ledge and the moss that's there, then both he and I go over. Honestly, I don't want either of us to go over, but if one of us is going to go. <clears throat> so here's what I did. I said, Tim, I can't pull you. Here's what you have to do. You have to put your foot, move your foot over. No, 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 move it over. And there's this urgency and intensity, both in, in my voice and in his face. And he gets his foot on the right spot and, and he pushes himself up and now he and I both are on the ledge. Now just prior to this, we had been on another ledge and someone down below, we had put our hands up in the air and we had, had taken it, someone took our picture up there. Well, we're up on this ledge now and, and both of us are a little nervous from the whole ordeal. We look down and we see that if either one of us had fallen from that position the end of that story is not going to be a good one. At that point, we abandoned the climb and there was a way that we could go off into the woods and then work our way safely down, which we did. Sometime later, someone, you know, had that picture developed. There was no digital photography back then. But it wasn't a guy under a hood back then either, just so you're well aware. So they, they developed the, the picture and I can still remember looking at that picture thinking, wow, just looking at it now from that vantage point, we were so close to peril, but not fully aware. Sometimes we use the expression, ignorance is, what's the next word? Ignorance is bliss, but it's not really true. There's something that demands knowledge. And when we do know the reality of our situation, and when we know the one who has the answer for our peril, there can be the potential for true peace. In Psalm chapter 42, the psalmist, the author here, is not blissfully ignorant of his perilous situation. He sees the oppression, he sees the danger that's coming from his enemies all about him, but he is calling upon his God to act and he's talking to himself he's having this conversation he's reminding himself of certain truths and that is primarily to trust in God this is the first psalm that mentions it is to be sung by this particular group of people it's to be sung by the sons of Korah now you might remember 
the name Korah. Korah. It goes along with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. These are three who in the days of Moses rebelled against Moses. And because of the the rebellion and because of the nature of their rebellion and their defiance against Almighty God, God brought swift judgment on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were ignorant of how very close to death, certain danger, judgment, they really were a bad place to be. But it's also interesting that now his sons, his offspring are invited to sing the praise of Almighty God. In fact, they're they're instructed to do so. A maskil, this this is a psalm of instruction. This is a song that's going to offer you wisdom for the way of life. And now these sons of Korah, who knew in their family the reality of danger that was closer than one could have imagined, are now invited to sing this song of instructive praise, this psalm of wisdom and worship to Almighty God. The author of this psalm we know is God the Holy Spirit, but the human hand, the human pen, so to speak, there's some controversy as to who is it that wrote this psalm. Some believe it was actually a guy, a king of Judah, whose name is Jehoiachin. They believe that Jehoiachin wrote this psalm while he's actually being carried away by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, where he is going to languish in a Babylonian prison for many years. Some believe that this psalm was written by the wonderfully godly king Hezekiah. Hezekiah writing when when he had been pronounced, you know, his death sentence had been pronounced. You're going to die, Hezekiah. And, and then Hezekiah experienced the healing touch of Almighty God. And yet there are others who are quite convinced that this is a psalm of David. They see his style, his authorship, his, his life all the way through. And they believe that David quite possibly wrote this psalm while he is fleeing for his very life, while his own son Absalom seeks the same. Spurgeon said this of the psalm. He said, it is always edifying to listen to the experience of a thoroughly gracious and much afflicted saint. Whoever wrote this psalm, we do know that they experienced the depths of affliction. There was something that was difficult, even depressive about their circumstances, their state, and then themselves. Spurgeon certainly did love this psalm. He referenced it often, quite possibly because this psalm resonated with his own bouts of deep discouragement. It's noted that frequently during his ministry, Spurgeon was plunged into severe depression. In a biography of the Prince of Preachers, Arnold Dallimore wrote the following. He said, what he suffered in those times of darkness, we may not know. Even his desperate calling on God brought no relief. There are dungeons, Spurgeon said, beneath the castles of despair. So it's interesting to note that throughout the scriptures, we many times see God speaking to man. 
But in Psalm chapter 42, as we see all throughout the Psalms, we see man speaking to God. And many times asking questions of God that we even stand back and say, are we allowed to ask those questions? But when you see the Psalms unfold, you see that not only are we allowed, but God invites us to come before him with honest questions. So Psalm chapter 42, the first thing we're going to look at in, in these first three verses, we're going to find in this passage what we'll call one consuming passion. One consuming passion. Your Bibles are open right now to Psalm chapter 42. Begin with me, if you will, in verse number one. You follow along as I read. Psalm 42, beginning in verse number one. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Notice the focus on this call to God. My soul thirsteth for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? This passage begins with the picture of the deer that is panting for water. And he says, just as the deer has one objective on its mind, I have to have water. There's nothing else that'll do. I don't need to eat right now. I don't need some physical nourishment. I don't need some kind of sustenance. The only thing I need right now is I need a drink of water. The only other place that this, this idea of my soul panteth is used in scripture is found in Joel chapter one, verse number 20. The beasts of the field cry. It's the same word for panteth in Psalm 42. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee for the rivers of waters are dried up. The fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And now these beasts that had gone over and over again to their watering hole, to the river that flowed, to the lake that, that had some ability for their thirst to be quenched. Now that's dried up. Where do we go now? The beasts of the field cry to you, God. And this is what the psalmist begins to communicate. He's saying there's something that I used to have. I, I used to go to this place and there my soul would be nourished. I so often found refreshment when I came to the waters of and those waters are dry. No matter where I seem to turn, I find no reprieve, no satiation, no, no ability for now this thirst to be quenched. I'm dry. And he comes to God and he says, when? So panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Where is thy God? It's what we would call an admirable thirst. Five times in these three short verses, the psalmist cries out to God. Do you know one of the things that he's at least acknowledging, if not specifically stating, he's saying all the trappings of religion won't satisfy. He's saying, God, I'm, I'm not calling to you for the ordinances. I'm not calling to you for the sacrifices. When can I come again and sacrifice? When can I practice the feasts? 
When can I engage in the festivals? He's saying all of what the religion has to offer pale in comparison to what truly satisfies my need. God, I need you. Have you ever noticed that sometimes God teaches us the value of his presence through the apparent absence of the same? That there is something that I have to have and and at times the absence of his presence is what actually brings our renewed focus on our desire for the same. How many of you have ever had a conversation with someone that wasn't actually in the room? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been talking and then you turn to look at them and you find they're not there? And do you know what David starts to understand or whoever it is is, is this human author? Where are you, God? I, I used to have you and where are you? About a year ago, Julie and I were, were um, away for a few days and on vacation and we're, we're in a little cabin in North Carolina. And it was a beautiful setting and a nice view and it was on a very steep hill. And this was again in North Carolina, but the hill and much of the surrounding area, it was covered in what I think we refer to as kudzu. Have you ever seen kudzu just grow and cover everything? I mean, it covers rocks, vegetation, everything. And this whole hill completely covered. We, we took note of it that it would be dangerous for us to, you know, explore because you couldn't see what was underneath. Well, we spent a few days there and it was time for us to pack up. And, and so I began to do the same, packing up the vehicle. It's parked right out in front of the cabin. And so the cabin door is open and the back of the vehicle, maybe a side door, and I'm packing stuff in and getting it loaded. Well, we had with us, it was Julie, myself, and traveling along with us was our dog, Sadie. Well, while I'm packing up, Sadie went out of the open door. And, and normally she stays very close, but for whatever reason, we couldn't find her. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm doing my normal, you know, call for the dog. Just like you would if the dog's missing, you're, you're going to call. That's what I did. Sadie, come on, girl. Sadie, come. And she's very good. She responds well. She'll, she'll come when she's called. But I'm calling the dog, and she is not coming. So now I start to go. I expand the search, and I'm calling for her. And, and she and I had done a lot of walks in the area. So now I'm going. Maybe she's exploring somewhere, and I'm calling with renewed you know, intensity. Sadie, come on, girl. Sadie, come. Sadie. And Julie hears me calling and she can hear the change in my tone. So now Julie comes out. Where's the dog? I don't know. In the back of our mind, we're thinking about that large, steep hill that if she explores down there and something happens, she falls, we're not going to be able to find her because the overgrowth is so thick. So this is in the back of our mind, but it's, it, it's an acknowledgement we don't really want to go. You know, Sadie, come. Come on, girl. Hey, come. Come on, let's go. And I mean, there's nothing. So where is the dog? And you can hear it in our voice. We're, we're calling out, Sadie, come. Come here right now. You get over here right now. There's no dog. Okay. 
So no matter what I do, I cannot find the dog. I'm, I'm deciding I'm going to start to at least figure out, do I see some of the overgrowth that's disturbed? That's, that's, there's, a, you know, there's something or maybe some movement. So I leave where I am and I am walking and I cross the front of the cabin and I cross the vehicle and I look in the front of the vehicle and the dog is sitting in the passenger seat. <laughs> and she's looking at me like, are you okay? All right. Now, it's interesting. It's just a dog. It's just a dog. But what kind of relief did I have when, when that which was lost was found? Do you know the urgency in your voice when you don't see your child in the neighborhood? And you hear the change. Billy, it's time for dinner. Billy. And then when that which is lost, that which you're separated from, is something that you've had, lost, and found. What's it like for you to hold the child after the child has been reunited? When you think about Psalm chapter 42 and you start to read its contents, you understand this is a person that knows what it's like to have been in the presence of God. This is not a person who, who has never experienced the beauty, the warmth, the intimacy of that fellowship. This is a person that has had it and now it appears to have vanished. Notice the next statement in verse number three. He says, my tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? We'll, we'll, we'll leave this verse in front of us for just a moment. Think about what he's saying. My tears, th this has been my sustenance day and night. Now, there's some question as to what's the they in reference to. Some would say the they is in reference to the enemy. The enemy saying, where is your God? But I, I prefer the idea that it's actually the tears that are asking the question. It's as if the, the tears that are running fresh down his face are asking a question over and over again. Where are you, God? Where are you? And now fresh tears fall and more questions are asked, more frustration, more, more spiraling into this sense of depression. God, where are you? My, my tears are asking a question that demands an answer. The psalmist again is detailing the recognition that he had something and that something is now lost. Why is the loss of a loved one so difficult? Even a loved one that we know is in the presence of God. We wouldn't bring them back, but their, their absence. Why? Because of separation. We just don't want to be without them. Is the thought of going throughout the day without drinking deeply from the well of God's presence. So foreign to you that you find that thought incomprehensible. I can't imagine going a day without the presence of God. Or is the thought of an all-consuming thirst for God something you may have never experienced? 
Sometimes we use the expression in, in finding out about all kinds of different things, important and somewhat unimportant. Once I discovered whatever, I have never looked back. In other words, once I had this, I don't ever want to go back to that. And it appears that the psalmist had discovered the beauty of fellowship with God. And now he's saying, God, I've had something and I don't ever want to be without. Once you've, you, once you've enjoyed this kind of oneness and union with Christ, to have it removed seems almost unbearable. And to have it restored is most desirable. As the, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Let's look further. We see one consuming passion, but we also find in this text one compelling question. One compelling question. Look at Psalm 42, beginning in verse number five, the first part. He says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? And then we go down to verse number 11. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? In fact, if you wanted to venture over into chapter 43, you find in chapter 43, the end of the, the chapter, again, the same question. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? The words cast down, it carries the idea of of. of having this incredible weight upon you and actually finding yourself succumbing to the weight that is pressing continually down. And then the words, why art thou disquieted? That they literally mean to growl, to rage. It means that there's a war that is going on in your soul. You go to sleep with it. You wake with it and it rages on throughout the course of your day. And again, this is not the way the psalmist has always been. And he acknowledges that. Look down at verse number four. Psalm 42, verse four. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept holy day. He recalls this throng of people in procession going to worship the Lord and now he can't even find God himself. These are the thoughts of a thirsty man. The thoughts of a man who's questioning his condition and desiring it to be improved. And even as the psalmist sees his circumstances, he finds that they are not sufficient to cause his despondency. So he asks the question, why am I discouraged? Why am I depressed? Now think through this. He acknowledges his circumstances. This is not a guy who's just playing some game, a little mental game. This is not a guy who's saying, oh, come on now, things could always be worse. Uh, you, you know, I know other people have it worse than I do. And uh, look at all that the Lord's blessed me with. He's not playing a game. He knows about his circumstances, but he still acknowledges his despair. He's being honest with himself and he's being honest with God. He's not trying to play some little trick on his spirituality to say, well, I, I just have to do this. 
Do you ever find yourself discouraged and not know the reason why? That, that is almost the indication that we get from the psalmist here. Like, why am I feeling this way? Honesty is a necessity in evaluation. And especially as it pertains to where we are spiritually. One of the, the, the men of days gone by lived in the early part of the, the 1900s. And his name was W.E. Sangster. He was a great preacher and he wrote the following. He said, I am a minister of God and yet my private life is a failure many times in these ways. I am irritable and easily put out. I'm impatient with my wife and children. I'm deceitful in that I often express private annoyance when a caller is announced and I simulate pleasure when I actually greet them. From an examination of my heart, I conclude that most of my study has been crudely ambitious, that I wanted degrees more than knowledge and praise rather than equipment for service. Even in my preaching, I fear that I am more often wondering what people think of me than what they think about my Lord and his word. I find slight envies in my heart at the greater success of other younger ministers. I seem to match myself with them in thought and am vaguely jealous when they attract more notice than do I. Sangster found that an honest admission of where he was in life was good for the soul, even as a minister. And the psalmist's answer was an honest admission about his condition that few of us would be comfortable acknowledging. Please know, I'm, I'm not saying that a casual greeting is the time to unload how you're really feeling. How are you doing? Well, do you have a few minutes? Okay. So I'm not saying that every time you're asked, I know we have cultural common greetings and responses. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I, I know how that works. But I also know that we have a propensity, an inclination, a tendency to, um, um, how are you doing? And, and we, we come away trying to communicate like the old children's song, I'm in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time. Since Jesus Christ came in and cleansed my heart from sin, I'm in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time. Is that really who you are? You know, sometimes it may be healthy for us to acknowledge maybe with someone with whom we have trust and certainly in front of the one who knows already the state of our heart. How are you doing? He offers here a compelling question. Why am I cast down? He wanted to know, when am I going to come and drink deeply again from the well of life? The well. When will his living water satiate my soul with times of refreshing? Now, we don't want to give the impression that the psalmist had no reason to be discouraged. Sometimes we do this and we give others simplistic answers like, well, just pray more. Uh, just, just meditate on the word. Uh, you, you know, just trust God more. But this psalm does imply that the author was facing wave after wave of trial. Psalm, 47, psalm 42, verse number seven. Notice what he says here. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. One author said it this way. He said, blow follows blow. Misfortunes come not in single file, but in battalions. Do you ever get to the place in life where you say, what else could happen? 
That's what's going on with the psalmist. So this happens, and then, and then this happens, and then another blow. Have you ever been out at the beach? Here in Pensacola, we have these beautiful beaches. Have you ever been knocked over by a wave, and then when you try to stand up, another one comes and knocks you over again? This is what the psalmist is relaying. Listen, I, I hear the thunderous aspect of, of the deep that answers the deep. And then all of your waves, your billows, they keep washing over me. Sometimes we just throw up our hands in frustration and what could be worse? And then worse seems to come. The question, why art thou cast down, often has no specific answer. You may find you have no ability to truly settle the question, but to realize that you are cast down is to identify with the raw honesty that's displayed in this psalm. And answering the question, why art thou cast down, may not be as important as recognizing, at least acknowledging that you are. But he doesn't leave us with, with simply this, this nagging question he takes us to a place where there is a comforting conclusion. Look at the end of verse number five and look at the end of verse number 11. The beauty of these two passages and the slight differences found in them both are the keys to the psalmist's comforting conclusion. Look, Psalm 42, last part of verse five. Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. The psalmist starts to detail several, several comforts. You know the first comfort that he gives to us is this trial would come to an end. This point of God, where are you? God, I know the day is coming when I'm going to be helped by your countenance. Okay, what do you have to have to be benefited from the countenance of another? You have to have presence. That person has to be there. You have to be able to gaze into their face. And the psalmist understands, I'm gonna hope in God for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I shall yet praise him. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on spiritual depression and he said it this way. I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. He goes on and he says, this self of ours, this other man within us has got to be handled. Do not listen to him, turn to him, speak to him, condemn him, upbraid him, exhort him, encourage him, remind him of what you know instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. Essentially what he's saying is speak truth to yourself. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. You know what he's saying? After you have suffered, there's coming something after the suffering. And that's what the psalmist acknowledges here. The second comfort that the psalmist offers is he recognizes the presence of God brings comfort. 
Yeah, the trial, it's going to come to an end. And then the presence of God, just that presence provides for me comfort. Again, Psalm 42, verse number five, hope thou in God for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He knew that to look on the face of God brought some comfort. There's probably not many people here who haven't used at some time in their life the expression, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. It's not what they say. It's not what they bring along with them. It's simply their presence. Do you know what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, listen, I know there's comfort that that there is coming a day when I'm gonna be back in your presence. There is coming a time when I'm gonna have comfort from the fact that you are there and I am aware. And then the last comfort that the psalmist experiences is that when we look into the face of God, our own face is changed. When we look into the face of God, something happens to our own. We remember what happened when when Moses was up in the mountain with God and he comes down. People are like, we can't even look at you, Moses, because when Moses spent literal time in the presence of the glory of God, as he gazes at God, there's something about Moses that changes. And I think the psalmist understood as he details in Psalm 42, the last part of verse 11. Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Earlier earlier in verse number five, he thanked the Lord for the help of his countenance. And now he said, your countenance is actually the key to the health of my own. The psalmist said, Lord, as I have spent time gazing at your face, I have found my own improved. Church, the question we're asking simply today is, are you finding yourself in a dry time? The value of that dryness is it makes you thirsty and there is only one place where that thirst can be truly quenched. Are you asking the question even today, why am I cast down? If so, then you can rely on the comforting conclusion that the psalmist had, and that is, I shall yet praise him. And maybe even today, your prayer could be offered something like this. God, my desire is to spend time in your presence, gazing upon your countenance with the realization that your countenance will change my own.